my name is Deborah Diamond. I am an author. I am also a spiritual teacher and a psychic medium. I also do medical intuitive work. Uh, my website is DebraDiamondAuthor.com if you want to check it out. Um, I am, as I said, I'm a psychic medium. I don't know if there is a typical psychic medium anymore. Maybe not. But um, if there is, I know I am not a typical one. Uh, I come from a background that's um, very left brain. Uh, I'm a left brain psychic. So um, my background is in the investment business. That was uh, what I did. I was a money manager, actually a money manager for other money managers. That was what I did. And um, I, that was my chosen profession. I did it for many years. I was a commentator on CNBC, a regular commentator. And I was also a um, professor at Johns Hopkins University in the graduate school uh, in finance and portfolio management. So that's my background, not a typical background for a psychic, I think. Uh, but anyway, th there is a reason why I'm doing this work, and you'll, you'll, as you listen, you'll see how it's all linked. Uh, when I was in the investment business, I always knew things. I don't know if any of you have had this experience where you know things or you feel things, but I always knew things. Uh, I would be able to pick up a, um, an annual report, a, a research report, um, a prospectus, and without reading it, I would know if it, the industry was a good industry, if the management was a, if there was a good management team. Uh, I would know if it was a good product uh, and a good investment. I didn't know how that was possible. This was without reading it, so I didn't know how it was possible. And of course, in the investment business, um, psychic is not really part of the vocabulary there. It's a dollars and cents business. So, and, and I didn't know that that's what was going on either. Now, my boss used to say to me, you know, Deborah, you have really good instincts. And perhaps some of you have the, you know, those instincts as well. But, you know, I thought, well, that must be the answer. It's good instincts. And I, I left it at that. I didn't, put too much other, too much more thought into it. Um, it wasn't until 2007, 2008, I decided to take an intuition development class in New York. We started out on Saturday morning and we were doing some exercises and I was getting everything. I didn't know how that was possible, but um, I wasn't too concerned about it. It was pretty low key. We took a break and when we came back, the teacher said, now I'm going to, we're going to do a seance. Can you imagine? I mean, it would be like me saying to you, you know, I've got you all here now, all 34 of you, and we're going to do a seance. Don't worry. We're not here to do a seance. I'm not, we're not going to do that. But that was kind of how I felt like, you know, wait, I came for something else. And uh, so I, you know, I thought about it. I really didn't want to do this seance. I was frankly scared. Um, but I thought, well, it was Saturday morning. The class was going through Sunday afternoon. And I figured, Nothing's going to come of it. We'll just do this one exercise, and then we'll go on and do the next exercise. So uh, the teacher said, I'm going to put you all in a meditative state, and then I'll take you out of the meditation. And if anyone sees anything, you let me know. And I figured, but that doesn't apply to me, no, because uh, I'm not going to see anything. So we all meditated, and when we were done with the meditation, the teacher said, does anyone see anything? And uh, I looked around the room and everyone was looking at each other. And I said, uh, I raised my hand and the teacher said, yes, Deborah, what do you see? And I said, I see about 50 people. These were people who had passed. I saw family members of mine who were on the other side. I saw friends and family of other uh, individuals in the class. 
And then I also saw some just random people that weren't associated with any of us kind of walking through the room. For instance, I saw a couple of 42nd Street showgirls walking through the middle of the room. The teacher also saw those, those showgirls. So um, the teacher said to me, do you see anyone in the corner of the room? Because if there's someone in the corner, chances are they go with someone sitting in that corner. Um, I said, yes, I do see someone in the corner. And the teacher asked me to describe this individual. And I said, he's, it was a man with dark hair, parted in the middle, big handlebar mustache, big white teeth. And as I described him, the woman sitting in that corner began to sob. And she said, I can identify him. That was my fiance. He died two years ago. Uh, and the woman in the corner said to me, during the break, do you mind if I show you pictures from my cell phone? Would you be able to identify him from these pictures on my cell phone? And I said, yes, because it was looking, it was the same as looking at all of you and looking at all these tiles on, on um, Zoom. Uh, I could see his face very clearly. So during the break, she came over and she flipped through some pictures on her cell phone. And I said, there, that's him. And she said, yes, that's my fiance. Uh, and now she had expected to hear from him. Uh, now, let me just back up a minute. I come from Wall Street. I didn't ever hear of anyone who had expected to hear from anybody in the afterlife. This was new to me, but she had expected to hear from him and had not. So she was very disappointed. Um, and she, um, you know, when I made this connection for her, she was very grateful to me. She hugged me and she thanked me. And, uh, you know, again, I come from Wall Street and there are no hugs on Wall Street, no thank yous either. So uh, I was very overwhelmed by all this. I really didn't know what to make of it. Uh, but it did register that I had done something meaningful for someone. And uh, so th that was important. Um, I continued in that class over the weekend and we did more exercises and lots of things were happening and popping with me. Uh, I still didn't understand what was going on. People were coming up to me in the class and saying, you must have been doing this for a really long time. And I said, actually, I've never done this before. So the class was over Sunday uh, evening and I drove back home. And on my way back home, I called uh, one of my sons. I have three sons. And this particular son scores very high in logic tests and standardized tests. So I um, called him because he's so logical. And I explained to him what happened. He didn't say anything. He didn't refute it. He, and uh, when I was all done, he said, well, that makes sense. We're just energy and the energy has to go somewhere. So that, that was something I could understand. You know, he was talking about combining science and spirituality. Um, and, you know, we are energy. Each of us is energy. We may have different containers, different bodies, but we're energy and everything is energy. This wall behind me is energy. The painting is energy. Everything has, contains energy and energy doesn't go away. Um, the container may go away, but the, the soul, the spirit, uh, the self, you know, however you want to describe it, that which constitutes what it is does not go away. So that made sense to me, what he was saying. And I actually took that, that idea. It's not a new idea. Einstein had the same idea. Um, it, I took that idea and I've used it in my work ever since because everything is energy. And this was, a, you know, again, a, um, 
a way of explaining it that made sense to me. Remember, I said I'm a left brain psychic. So, uh, you know, we weren't talking about ghosts. We weren't talking about ectoplasm. Nobody was saying I was crazy or that it didn't happen. Several months after this class, I decided to go to Taos, New Mexico. And I don't know how many of you have ever been to Taos, but uh, I had been there many times in the past. And um, I decided I was going to go uh, that summer and paint. I rented a place for two months to go out there and paint. That's all I was going to do. Uh, it had nothing to do with this experience. So I went out there for two months. I painted. And when my lease was up at the end of the two months, I said, I I'm not going home. I didn't know why I wasn't going home. I was just kind of listening to this little voice in me that said, you're not, you're, you're not leaving. You're supposed to be here. So I listened and I stayed. And I ended up staying for a number of years. And that was where I unpacked this energy because, and, and began to work with it. Because in Taos, uh, you know, when people say, what do you do? And you say, I'm a psychic. They say, oh, me too. Now, I don't know where you live, each of you, but where I live in Maryland, that's not something you would ever tell a person. You know, if they asked, what do you do? And you wouldn't say I'm a psychic. If you were a psychic, you'd probably say something else. Um, and if you did say you were a psychic, nobody would say me too. So, uh, but in Taos, it's a very spiritual place. There are a lot of uh, writers, musicians, artists, uh, a lot of spiritual people. It's a very high vibration. And uh, being a psychic and doing this kind of work is kind of normalized. So that was where I sort of forgot that I felt uh, funny about it. And I began to work with the energy. Eventually, I felt like my time in Taos was done, and I uh, decided to return to the East Coast. Um, and I also thought, you know, since I'm returning to the East Coast, my work, this kind of work, uh, metaphysical work, spiritual work, is, is over because the East Coast is not like Taos, New Mexico. Uh, that did turn out to be true. Uh, when I came back to the East Coast, shortly after I returned, I was approached by a woman who was 37 years old, and had uh, dropped dead of a cardiac arrest in her kitchen uh, while she was making breakfast. And um, she was taken to the hospital, she was revived, but uh, she did have an NDE, near-death experience, and she asked me if I would do a reading for her. Uh, other readings followed from that, and before I knew it, I was practicing, you know, doing work as a psychic and a medium. Uh, now, in 2013, I was approached to do a reading for a famous person who'd had a near-death experience. Another uh, acronym for near-death experience is NDE, near-death experience. This person um, had an NDE, was struck by lightning, and uh, died and came back, and, and they hear symphonies, okay? And they can also play these symphonies on the piano. Uh, they could not play the piano before their near-death experience. They had, um, this individual had very extraordinary after effects. Not everybody has after effects like this, but um, people have a variety of after effects. At any rate, I was asked to do a reading for him in Washington, D.C., and I went to D.C., and I did the reading, and it was a very unusual reading. Uh, I was seeing a lot of symbols from the universe, psychics see things in symbols. I was seeing symbols from the universe and the cosmos. It was a different reading than what I was accustomed to. Um, I came home that evening and I thought, why does this person have these abilities and what's he supposed to do with them? And what about other NDEers? What do they get, if anything? And why is this happening? Uh, 
So I uh, Googled NDE After Effects and I found out, guess what, there hadn't been any research done. So I decided I would do the research. Many people have had spiritually transformative experiences, which share something with NDEs, that is people come back transformed. And they, this often happens to people if they um, suffer a loss of a loved one. It could be a divorce, it could be a loss of a job, but you know, often it's a loss of a loved one. And uh, that does something to transform their consciousness and, and gives them what we call a spiritually transformative experience. And what that means is that they are transformed in their life. They're unable to go back to their previous life. So people who um, have had NDEs and STEs who've read this book, I think have taken heart uh, about the stories because they can identify with so many of these stories. Again, most people don't talk about these shifts and these changes that they undergo. So they don't know if they're going crazy. They don't know if they're normal. They don't know what's going on. They don't have anybody to talk to. But once you read about other people and their stories and their cases and what happened to them, you can say, that's like what happened to me or that aspect, you know, yes, that, I understand that. So I, so I wrote this book about near death experiences. Now, what about, uh, my book that just came out, Diary of a Death Doula. How did that come about? I mean, it's sort of related to the near-death experiences. Um, I'm a psychic and a medium, and I don't know if you all know the difference between psychics and mediums. Uh, mediums have more to do with the afterlife. So psychics are able to obtain information from the universe about things that affect all of us, and it might be your job, it might be your family, your relationships, your health, money. Um, but that's what psychics do. It's, it's a lower vibration to retrieve that information. Mediums are able to access those in the afterlife. So you have to go higher to make those connections. So think of mediums, you know, or think of this as like a television antenna or radio antenna. And, you know, lower down on the antenna is where psychics are. You know, they can pick up lower level information. Mediums, you know, you have to go all the way to the top of that antenna to uh, grab the information they're getting. So mediums have a lot more power. All mediums are psychics, not all psychics are mediums. Now, I'm both. I'm a psychic and a medium. So I can communicate with those in the afterlife, but I can also retrieve information about, you know, things that affect all of us on Earth. So, um, so my work as a medium and my work as an author in these topics of the afterlife and near-death experiences and actual physical death, or, you know, that's all related to also my work as a medium. Um, now, let me just uh, back up for a minute and tell you how I became involved in the, the work of uh, a death doula. Um, almost 20 years ago, my mother passed away. And... Um, we had hospice come uh, towards the end and they, to help her and to help us, to help the family. They were really wonderful. And anyone who's dealt with hospice knows that these people are angels. They're wonderful. Um, they do an extraordinary service. But at one point, one of the hospice professionals handed me a piece of paper and said, uh, you might want to read this. And I thought, you know, maybe this has to do with uh, funeral arrangements or um, medication. I set it aside, but eventually I picked up this piece of paper, and when I read it, I saw that it said, if the soul is ready and the body isn't, you don't leave. And if the body's ready and the soul isn't, you don't leave. But when the body's ready and the soul's ready, then you leave. Well, 
this was a lot more than I expected from hospice. You know, here this hospice professional was telling me that we are more than our physical body. Uh, we are body and soul. Up until that time, my idea of death, physical death, was something maybe out of the movies, you know, where I expected the universe, you know, all the heavens to open and the universe to reveal all its secrets. It was something very dramatic. And, and uh, physical death is not really like that. It's a process like, just like birth. So I knew that I wanted to be of service. I knew I wanted to do something with hospice. It took me a number of years until I did the training, but eventually I became a death doula. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the term death doula, but um, death doulas, maybe some of you have heard of birth doulas. And birth doulas sit, are, are available to women who are um, giving birth. They're midwives and you know they, they assist women who are, who are giving birth. Um, Death doulas assist people who are leaving, you know, who are dying. So uh, doulas, you know, bookend life, birth and death. The concept of a death doula is fairly new. I mean, sitting vigil uh, with someone who's dying, sitting at the bedside is nothing new. That's been going on for thousands of years. But the service of a death doula is fairly new. And um, so as a result, there isn't a standard yet. There are all kinds of death doulas. Some work at hospice, some work for hospitals, uh, some are private uh, doulas, and you know they have their own businesses. Some go to homes, you know, to help the dying. So uh, there's no standard yet. Some of the doulas assist with wills. Uh, some help the families. Uh, some get involved with the the patient, creating legacy projects. Uh, some may sit with the patients and and just chat with them or provide companionship. Um, I am a death doula who sits bedside with the actively dying. So that, that's different. Um, actively dying is defined uh, by the medical folks as the last 24 to 48 hours of life. And uh, they don't always get it right, by the way, because again, you know, we have a soul and we have a physical body. And if the soul's not ready and the physical body's ready, you're not going anywhere. The doctors are looking at the physical body. They're not looking at the soul. They, they're, most of them, I guess, aren't able to. Um, I'm a medium. I'm, you know, I'm able to see things like that. But, um, but anyway, I wanted to be a death doula. I knew I could sit bedside with the actively dying because I talk to people who've passed all the time, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm comfortable with that. I'm not afraid of death. So, I um, decided uh, to become a, a death doula who sits who's there at very end of life. And now patients at that stage are um, not responsive generally, but they are conscious. Now, for those of you who've ever walked into the room of a dying patient, a loved one, um, or a friend, you know, uh, and you see someone, you see your friend or loved one lying in the bed and it looks like no one's home and it's kind of scary. Um, I can tell you as a medium, because I'm able to see into the invisible worlds, that there's a lot more going on than, you know, what we see with the naked eye. You know, there's a lot more going on than just what we see, you know, the physical body. Um, their physical body may be there lying in the bed, but their consciousness is somewhere else. And they are, they spend an awful lot of time out of body at end of life, traveling, journeying. They may go um, revisit memories from their youth. They may visit their new home on the other side. They may um, meet up with loved ones on the other side. They may see fantastic landscapes. Uh, you know, there's a variety of places they could go and it's very comfortable and peaceful and joyful for them for the most part. Um, 
again, while people think that, you know, there's nothing going on and they, they are generally are not responsive, their consciousness is very uh, alive. So, um, you know, I think that's the first thing that we have to remember about uh, physical end of life. You know, here uh, in a Western nation in the United States, and I don't know how many of you who are join, joining this call live elsewhere, but in our culture, um, death has become a clinical process. Uh, it's been pretty much taken over by science in the medical world. It wasn't always this way. Um, if you go back this is very unusual, actually. It's only in the last maybe 150 to 200 years that it's become like this. If you go back 5,000 years ago in history to the Egyptian culture, which is the oldest culture uh, on earth, um, they believed in an afterlife. They had the Book of the Dead. If you've ever been to the British Museum, you could see the Book of the Dead there. They believed there were stages of the afterlife and all of our, their lives were in preparation for the afterlife. Um, they weren't the only culture to believe that. The Mesopotamians believed that. The Mayans, the Incas, um, many cultures believe this. Um, in the Inca culture, when somebody died, uh, they would wrap that, you know, their loved one up and um, carry, put them in a chair and carry them around with them to parties. They would consult them for advice. In the Mayan culture, they buried their loved ones under the living room floor, you know, so they could continue to be part of the family. Um, so the dead were not considered dead. They were still considered around, you know, they were very much present in, in the living's life. Um, so, but, but, you know, what's happened in the last 150 to 200 years is that when people die, they now are whisked off to a hospital or a hospice or some sort of clinical setting. It's very antiseptic and you're, you know, at the, sort of at the mercy of medical science. And you know, in medical science, death is considered a failure. I mean, many physicians will do anything to prevent a death, you know, even if it's time to go, you know. So, um, you know, this is a situation we've gotten ourselves into and um, I think it's changing, but it's, it's a fairly new phenomenon. Even in the Victorian age, um, death was not treated that way. People died at home, surrounded by their loved ones. And of course, you know, that hasn't happened so much lately because your loved ones may be halfway around the world. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, how it's become, but I think it's changing. Um, now, in terms of what happens at end of life, you know, I've already referenced that there are, um, that the, the loved one is out of body, they're comfortable, you know, you may think they're in pain, but, you know, if they're traveling out of their body, they don't, they're out of their body. So what's happening with their body generally is it's medicated and they, they're not feeling anything. And, you know, it's the same as um, for any of you who've read any near-death experience books, and I've talked to thousands of NDEers, thousands. And, um, you know, they all say the same thing. They were out of their bodies in this experience. They were looking down in their bodies. There was no association with the body. It could have been a piece of furniture. So they're not feeling anything. But, um, uh, it's the same at end of life. People are out of their bodies and they're traveling and they generally are comfortable. Um, this traveling that they do is very important because it allows their consciousness to expand and to grow at end of life. And something, something happens at end of life uh, with their consciousness. Not only are they out of body and their consciousness is uh, traveling, but 
it continues to expand and grow as the end of life and dying process continues. So while their physical body is declining, their consciousness is expanding until they actually pass, until they die, and then their consciousness is fully expanded and they're on their way to the afterlife. So um, now I have a friend who is a uh, hospice chaplain, and she asked me uh, when I you know, I was talking about this book, Diary of a Death Doula. She said, you know, so tell me about your book. And, uh, you know, if you could just maybe describe it in one sentence, what would you say? So I said, well, you know, people have this end of life process where their consciousness expands and their physical body declines. Um, you know, every time they travel and they're out of body, their consciousness is expanding. And she, when I was done talking, she just looked at me and she said, I know exactly what you're talking about. Now, hospice chaplains spend time with, with um, hospice patients from the moment they come in the door. So there could be a, you know, many hospice patients who are um, completely with it. Uh, and um, the hospice chaplain would spend time with them and chat with them and talk with them and you know, maybe see them every day and chat with them. And she said, you know, my patients tell me when they travel. So I know about that. And she said, you know, and every time they come back, they're a little bit different. So, uh, you know, I liken it to, I don't have a better metaphor, but I liken it to the fact that every time they leave their body and they're traveling, they're going to the universal consciousness filling station, getting tanked up. Uh, because that's what it feels like. It just feels like, you know, they, they open up this door to their consciousness and they get a little more consciousness put in each time uh, until their consciousness is completely full. Um, now, because I have done so much work also with near-death experiencers, I was familiar with this idea because this also happens with near-death experiencers. They are out of their body, they travel, they see, you know, they have lots of experiences, and then they come back from their near-death experience, and you know what happens? They come back with too much consciousness. Their energy has been altered, and that is why they have these after-effects. The consciousness, this increased consciousness is translated to a number of after-effects. They're top-heavy with consciousness. Now, in an NDE, they come back. It's not physical terminal death. They come back to life, so that's how we know about their consciousness and, you know, what happens to them. In actual physical death, they don't come back. Although for mediums, you know, we're able to communicate with them. And for someone like myself, who's able to see the other side and see these folks traveling at end of life, it's a, you know, it's a different story. So um, I think it's important to, re to remember, you know, what I said at the beginning, and that is we are not just our soul and we are not just our physical body, we're both. And uh, both are involved in the process. Um, there are lots of other things that happen at end of life. You know, our families uh, who are in spirit on the other side routinely come into the rooms of the dying to be with them, to comfort them and provide support. And the dying know that. They know they're there. And they, uh, if any of you have ever had this experience of dying, often talk to, you know, their, their mother who's passed, you know, and the way they have the conversation is you're only hearing one side of the conversation. The patient may say a few sentences and then stop and then say a few more sentences and stop because they're listening to the other person uh, speak. And uh, you know that person may be invisible to most people, but they're very visible to the dying. The layer, the, 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 the veil at end of life is so thin because their consciousness, the patient's consciousness is being altered and opened up that they're able to see into the other side. Well, let me give you my website. It's deboradiamondauthor.com. 
jenniferdiamondauthor.com. And there, there's a contact page. Feel free to reach out to me on my website and um, I will respond.